Actually, that's what I thought I saw today with you guys. Man, you guys were throwing and dodging and looking and doing all. You guys were awesome. Why, thank you. You were awesome. Uh, they're, uh, of course, we're watching that because it's fun to watch. Yeah. But uh, I want you to think about something. Which ones are the more fun ones to watch? Fall. When they biff, right? They end up in the water. That's that's a lot more. It's a lot, that's where the big you know laugh and everything uh, comes. You see more handouts back there. Um, and when everything goes well, there isn't as big a reaction. Uh, I want you to I want you to think about this. The the minute you put the name Christian on you, that there is a world that is watching you, and they're watching whether you're going to clear. Or not clear, and uh, what uh, what you actually look like, and how you appear to the rest of the world, and the Bible says that the goal is is that for us to live in harmony and to live in such a way that actually people watch the way we live, and and they say, wow, that's compelling, that's I that's what I want to be, I want to be a part of that, as opposed to something that the world watches and kind of chuckles at, laughs at, and puts you on YouTube for. Uh, that's not as much fun. And so I want us to think about tonight, we're going to talk about this idea of living in harmony and living for God, and then Peter comes back to the topic of suffering, and uh, that will kind of close down suffering. Tomorrow night we'll close it by looking at chapter 5. One little disclaimer tonight, when you're trying to do uh, an entire book in six lessons, you're going to have to skip through some things, and tonight is where we're kind of skipping around and skipping through a few things. So in chapters 3 and 4, getting a little bit of short treatment. Uh, there's some, I can't treat everything there, but I think we're going to talk about the things that are going to really hit you the best for this week. So with that as a disclaimer, let's have a word of God and let's dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for a tremendous day, incredible weather, the opportunity to enjoy uh, really fun adventures together. And Father, now we pray that you would guide us uh, through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, as Peter begins this next section... In chapter 3, he has a call for us to live in harmony. And uh, not be, be laughing stops, stops on YouTube, but to live in harmony. All of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessings. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Uh, the goal is for us to live in harmony. And uh, this is some of you uh, here, I guess, that they would know they're living in harmony. Uh, think about that. You're doing games in which if you don't all work together in the same way, in lockstep. In fact, I noticed a lot of that today, right? That, that there were certain things that if you didn't do them uh, in a synchronized fashion, it wasn't going to work. Uh, I guess the one in particular I noticed was the teeter-totter, where you had to be very synchronized as you went to the sides and came back to the middle. Uh, this is, what, uh, this is what Peter is talking about, for us to live in harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, humility, repaying insults with blessing. That's the goal. Uh, that is the goal. Now, here's the question. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard? Because it seems to be hard. In fact, sometimes even today, as you're doing different things, you're struggling with a variety of, of uh, problems that make it hard. Uh, and I'd say if I had to uh, 
to give the shortest answer, uh, the, the reason why this is so hard is because, candidly, uh, I care a lot more about me than I do about you. That's why it is. It's because I'm selfish, and I'm full of pride, and I care about me more than I do about you. That's why, as we understand the gospel and God's call upon our life to live in the light of the gospel, God's call is then to learn to love him and to learn others. That uh, 3 o'clock thing, whatever that was, yeah. there we go. Uh, to, to, to do this 3 o'clock thing that uh, John is talking about and to learn what it means to love God and love our neighbor and stop being so self-focused and, and, and to actually uh, practice that in a way that people can see it and in a way that it's actually compelling. Uh, living in harmony. That's, that's harmony right there. Yeah. Little brother and sister. I know that. That's what I was thinking. We don't know what happens next, do we? Yeah. Or do we? The Bible says that our harmony is a primary witness to the rest of the world. The way that we actually love each other is one of the ways uh, that the world gets to see that the gospel is real. That's another theme that's come across. Uh, how do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in a variety of ways, as you guys noted today in the seminars, or you will know tomorrow, I'm not sure which, but, uh, but one of the things uh, that, uh, that the world, that when they see the way we relate to each other, uh, then this is to be, again, a compelling example and this is one of the ways in which the world sees Jesus through us. Uh, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I've often thought, if I wrote that, how would I finish that sentence? All men will know that you are my disciples if you... If you tell them you're my disciple, if you have sound doctrine. If you know all your Bible verses, if you do your devotions every day, if you pray an hour every day. Now notice all those things are great things. I, I, I hope you read your Bible. I hope you pray. But the number one thing that Jesus says that the world will see is if you love each other and care for each other, uh, then the world is going to see that. Actually, uh, your prayer, Jesus says, is probably just as well taking place in a closet. A lot of the spiritual disciplines you practice aren't for the world to see. They're for you to build your relationship with God. But this is for the world to see. But these are people who love each other and they care about each other in a way that's compelling. Um, and then he goes on. Uh, not only are we to be living in harmony as a witness to the world around us, uh, but to also be living for God. And what does that look like? Okay, we could all sing that together. Now Peter goes on. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter makes this connection and uh, that we actually change behavior uh, uh, because we love God. We stop in the name of love for God. Uh, but there's also that when we practice uh, living for God, when we actually live for God in such a way that we, we actually have to suffer for him, 
that that changes us. And Peter makes a very bold statement here. Uh, in fact, it's almost hard for us to comprehend. Uh, he says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. Peter's telling us the truth. But I hope that sentence that I underlined is kind of bothering you right now. Because I'm not done with sin. <coughs> I don't think you're done with sin. And yet, Peter says there's some sense in which when you've suffered, you're done with sin. Now, I want to frame a little context here for what I think Peter is saying. Obviously, we are never done with sin if that means that we stop sinning in this life. But Peter is someone who has suffered, and Peter is someone who is going to suffer more. And as he speaks to us about suffering, Peter says that when you're living for God, and when you actually have a choice in your life of obedience and faithfulness to God, and that choice of obedience and faithfulness leads you to have to actually suffer, and you choose, because you love Jesus, to suffer for obedience Peter says there's kind of a, a breakthrough that takes place in your life. What's the, what's the power of sin? And the power of the world is uh, to, to have you conform and uh, to make you fearful, to make you afraid of doing what is right. And yet when you get to the point where you say, I love Jesus and I'm willing to do what's right, I'm willing to do what's right even if it causes me pain, Peter says when you finally get to that threshold, there is a sense in which uh, the power of sin is substantially diminished in your life. Because that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to obey when all the circumstances are good. Peter says, what about when the circumstances aren't good? What about when the circumstances are such that, in fact, obeying Christ means you are going to suffer? And when you get to that point, and you say at that point, yes, Jesus, I want to obey you. At that point, Jesus said, uh, Paul, Peter says, there is a, there's a kind of a breakthrough that you have at that moment. And so, uh, again, not done with sin in the sense that you don't sin anymore, that sin has no power in your life, but there is a substantial uh, difference in the power of sin in your life because you have made a hard choice. You live in a world of hard choices. We all do. And uh, sometimes we make the wrong choice. We make a lot of wrong choices. But uh, Peter wants to encourage us to say that when we stop in the name of love, when we make a choice, in fact, one that we may suffer for, that that is something that is pleasing to God, <coughs> and we will find a new liberation, a new level of, of obedience is possible in our life. Um, Living for God continued here. Because he says the past, if we think about the past, the past we can be very discouraged. He said, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange you, you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you, that you will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. If this isn't underlined in your Bible, underline in the Bible. Right in the margin, peer pressure. This is called peer pressure. When you make a choice to follow Christ, a hard decision, when you stop in the name of love, because you love Jesus, some people won't be content with that. 
And some people want to pull you along and pull you into the, the old patterns and habits and traps of your life. And they're going to say, well, you're strange. Come on. You don't remember what we used to do? We used to have such fun together. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. They're going to pull you back. If you change the course in your life out of love for Christ, the world is going to try to pull you back on that other course. Because when you're on the course with them, they feel more comfortable on the wicked course. And so Peter says that this is exactly what's going to happen. If you change the course of your life, if you try to live for Christ, uh, the world is going to pull you back and perhaps even heap abuse on you. Uh, but he reminds us that there is going to be a day of accounting. And that's to be our motivation uh, to, uh, to be eager uh, to stand before the Lord on that day. And again, not because I'm Mr. Super Obedient and I did everything great. Um, uh, only for the sake of Christ. Only for the sake of His righteousness. Uh, think about that more in a minute. Living for God. Uh, this is hard. When we think about the pull of, the, of, of sin in our lives and the pull of the world and this desire to go back to the old ways, whatever they are, and maybe the challenges in your life weren't listed in that text. Um, but I've got this little saying in my ministry, and, and it's, it's this phrase right here. Everybody has a story. As you look around this room, you see a lot of people who maybe who don't struggle, don't have problems, and seem to have to be on easy street, and everything goes well with them, and they're just fine. And I just want to tell you, everybody has a story. What do I mean by that? We're living in a world full of sinners. You're, you're in a church full of sinners. Your uh, speaker and uh, leaders and counselors are sinners. And we all have stories of how sin has impacted our lives. And so as we determine to live for God, again, there are these challenges from our own history, from our own pattern of life, from the patterns of friends that we've had and the life that we've lived. All these things pull at us, and it make living for God uh, difficult. Peer pressure is nothing new. And by the way, peer pressure does not go away when you graduate from high school. And it does not go away when you graduate from college. It does not go away when you become a pastor. Uh, I think there's only one cure for peer pressure. Death. That's it. That's a pretty good cure. The, uh, it's very hard not to be compelled by what other people think about you. But I would encourage you, uh, and, and Peter is saying, don't think about the past. Think about the future. Think about that new, that new horizon that you're on. And you're on a new pathway, and there's a new horizon in your life. And, uh, and if you, again, focus on the past, uh, it's going to weigh you down. Your friends want to pull you back. Focus on the new horizon and where you're heading and how good it is. And this is the call of, of living for God. <coughs> Um, I, I, I do want to just encourage you one more time about this, the, the idea of everyone has a story. Um, one of the things we do when we meet people is we make judgments about them immediately. Um, and if you tell me that that's not true, uh, talk to me later. I'll try to figure out why you have a problem with lying. <laughs> um, we, we immediately make judgments about people. We notice how they dress, how they look, what their accent is like, what their behavior is like. We notice, 
We notice so many things about people every time we meet somebody, and we form immediate impressions about people. And the one thing I just want to encourage you again with is that just remember, every person you meet, they have a story. They came from somewhere. Uh, they have a background. They have a history. They have issues that they've dealt with. And you don't know what those issues are. God calls us to be gracious with people, to be understanding with people, to, be, to, to exercise kindness. We'll talk about that more in, in just a minute. To, to exercise a gentleness toward people around us. Well, Peter goes on to continue living for God. In this family of the church, uh, near, and by the way, this, this, the end of all things is near. Peter uses this motivation quite a bit. In fact, in, in 2 Peter as well, this motivation of, Jesus is coming back someday. In light of that fact, how should you live? And, uh, and so he says again, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Uh, living for God. Uh, notice the things that uh, Peter highlights. What does this new harmony look like as we live for God? Uh, and he, these are the things that Peter picks out. He says you're to be clear-minded and self-controlled. Uh, not governed by the people and the things around you, but uh, governed by the Spirit is the image of, of self-control and clear-minded. By the way, clear-minded, uh, that's why uh, the, uh, the idea... The idea that we're not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. We're not to have some other kind of force that's, that's overtaking us and overpowering us. But it's the Spirit who is to fill us. It is the Holy Spirit who is to guide and, and, and lead us, uh, not uh, something else. And so to be clear-minded, self-controlled. Notice that he highlights prayer. This new life of living for God is a life of prayer. Uh, it's a life of love. For the people around us. Uh, it's a life of hospitality. Now, I wouldn't put that on the list, but hospitality was very, very important in the early church. Uh, it was the church who cared for people. This was their, again, witness to the world uh, that they cared for those that the world would not care for. Uh, that was the, in fact, the word hospitality, that's, again, the, the same root word that we get the idea of a hospital from, a place where you care for people. In the, uh, in the Roman world, when the plague hit uh, and Christians were around, it was the Christians who would take people who had the plague and, and give them water and care and comfort. And, and some would survive and some wouldn't. But that is where the idea of, of hospitals come from and hospitality. That Christians cared for people who the rest of the society said, get out of town because I don't want to get the plague from you. This is how the Christians gained their reputation, how they were known, because they were the people who offered hospitality. Uh, the same thing in the Roman world. Uh, if a child wasn't wanted, a child was just left uh, to uh, be exposed. And so children were just left out in the countryside, left outside the city walls uh, where uh, they would die and be eaten by dogs. The Christians began gathering those children, bringing them into their homes, offering true a kind of love 
and a kind of hospitality that the rest of the Roman world did not understand. It was a powerful, powerful witness in the first few hundred years of the church. And this is what Peter is exhorting us toward, is to be unique in this way, distinct in this way. This is how living for God, what it really looks like. Um, and then he highlights the fact that we use spiritual gifts. That God gives you gifts, and those gifts are meant to be used in the, in the life of the God's people. Uh, living for God. I think if we live in a compelling way like this, again, the world will notice. The world will notice. Well, speaking for God as well, in chapter 3, verse 15, this backs up a little bit. And this is what we've been, uh, that your, your uh, seminars have been trying to train you for a bit today as well. Uh, Peter says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Um, I, uh, I wear a, uh, in my heart, not on my wrist, but in my heart I wear a WWJD bracelet. And it's, uh, what would Jerem do? Uh, it's hard sometimes to imagine what Jesus would do, but uh, I can imagine what Jerem would do. Uh, Jerem is, was one of my professors from seminary. And uh, Jerem is just one of the kindest men I've ever known. Uh, I, he just seems to hardly ever have a harsh word. And I know it's hard to put up a person as a role model because we're all flawed and we're all sinful. Uh, but if I were to pick somebody who I've known as a role model, that's the guy. Just the sweetest, kindest person I've ever known. Well, one of the things that Jerem uh, does regularly is share Christ with people and practices evangelism. And one of the things that Jerem stresses all the time is to love people that we would not only give an answer for what we believe, but that we would do this with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Uh, that means that, uh, again, as you've heard in the seminars this week, uh, your goal is not to get someone to pray a prayer. Your goal is not to pressure someone into some kind of a spiritual decision. Your goal is to love people and to share life with them. And when it comes up in conversation, to be able to give an answer for what you believe in a very natural way, uh, to tell your story, whatever your story is. Uh, to be a witness, and to do it with gentleness and kindness and respect. Uh, I want you to think about this with me. What is a, what is a witness? We talk about witnessing. Okay, a, a witness is someone who has seen something and gives testimony to what they've seen. It's as simple as that. That's what your job is. Have you seen God do something in your life? Have you seen God do something? Uh, then just... Be ready in, in humbleness and, and respect to tell people what you've seen God do. It's, it's really not that complicated. Um, I think I've often, here's my true confession for the night, I've often felt like I have to have this super deluxe and great answer for somebody uh, when they ask me about my faith. And, and it isn't enough just to simply share uh, that I love Jesus and he saved me from my sins and and to just share a simple story, I feel like I've got to have some kind of a, you know, super deluxe answer for people. And uh, when I was back teaching, uh, another teacher of mine, we used to exercise together. 
and got to one of the nicest guys I've ever met, right behind Jerem somewhere, and uh, but not a believer. And so we're uh, we're exercising one day in the middle of the exercising. All of a sudden, he turns to me and he says, "You know, uh, Stu, people are always asking me if I'm a Christian, and I never really know what to say to them. Uh, Stu, to you, what does it mean to be a Christian?" That's that's the moment we're all waiting for, right? What what does it mean to you to be a Christian? And so the stage is set. He's put the question out there, and there I am, and I really blew it. It was awful. I started fumbling around and bumbling and trying to say something that I thought sounded smart because he's a smart guy, and I want to sound smart when I talk to him. And I wasted an opportunity. Completely, absolutely, totally blew it. Why couldn't I just say, you know, Christians are sinners who know Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, and we trust him to do that for them. But I didn't. Gentleness, respect, be ready when somebody, I want you so much to be ready when somebody asks that question to you, because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And you don't need to have a big memorized presentation. You don't need to be slick and smooth. You just need to tell them what you know. And you know a lot. Every person in this room, you know a lot. You know enough to help someone meet Jesus. And much more than that. And then he closes down with some thoughts on suffering. Uh, it says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Um, Christ died for sins once for all. There's another great verse to just highlight in your Bible. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Highlight that one. If you're going to memorize a verse, that's got to be in the top 20. Um, but then he, he mentions some kind of strange things here. Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, what's that about? He reminds us again to suffer for good, not for evil, but he speaks in this passage. And the only reason I'm going to deal with it is because it's fairly cryptic, and it kind of takes us out of the flow a little bit, but I hate to have the one cryptic passage just avoid it. So here's the cryptic passage. What does Noah have to do with all this stuff, and what, is, what does Jesus have to do with Noah? Peter says that uh, Jesus, uh, the Spirit, through Christ, uh, preached... Um, let me, I want to get it right here. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, and God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. The spirits in prison, the Bible talks about places where people go when they die. And uh, one of the places is prison. Uh, that there is a final destination called hell, uh, but in the meantime, souls go to heaven or go to prison. And eventually will go to a new heavens and a new earth and the final uh, place of punishment, which the Bible calls uh, hell. Well, 
speaking of the days of, of Noah, and says that it was the Spirit of Christ, actually, who was preaching to that entire generation, and they would not repent. They had the opportunity to repent through Noah, and through the Spirit of Christ working through Noah, but they did not repent, and now those people, their spirits are imprisoned. And he speaks of the judgment that took place on that day. And I want you to notice that the imagery of immersion is an imagery of judgment. This is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we believe in a baptism by immersion, we're saying that we are, we're judged and we're raised again out of that judgment. That's the imagery of immersion baptism. Uh, also, though, while the world was being judged, Noah and the ark was just being sprinkled. And sprinkling is the image of cleansing in the Bible. So immersion is an image of judgment. Sprinkling is an image of cleansing. And if you can think of it this way, in the ark, the water is being used both ways. The world is being judged, and yet the faithful that God has saved are only being sprinkled. Uh, a very interesting thought there. Well, it's a cryptic passage. Had to deal with it. Now let's move on. More suffering. And as he closes up with these thoughts on suffering, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I mentioned this before, and I'm not sure uh, why it is, uh, but I do think it's strange when I'm suffering. Um, do not be surprised. Um, but I am surprised. And I just want to reiterate this briefly. I think there's a problem in the church, and I don't want you to be a part of the problem. There is a large segment of the church in America that believes that if I live a certain way, God will help me avoid suffering in my and I just want you to understand and I want you to hear this very clearly. That is not biblical. That is not the way the world works. Do not be surprised, Peter says. You will suffer. You're, there's going to be suffering in this life. But the, the point of the suffering is to connect that suffering to Christ. Are we suffering for the sake of Christ? Or are we suffering just because I've made a mistake and I've done something foolish? Now, God is going to use both of those. But actually, when we're suffering for the sake of Christ, uh, suffering itself, uh, that, that kind of suffering can become joyful. I mean, not that suffering is enjoyable, but when suffering is connected to Christ, that means it has a purpose, it has a meaning, and when you're experiencing something, even pain in your life, and you know it has a meaning... You can bear up under it much better. When you connect suffering to Christ, uh, there is a purpose behind it. And uh, suffering itself actually can become joyful. Uh, and this is, uh, this is hard for us to understand. But suffering is the tool. Suffering is the hammer and the chisel which God uses to shape us and to change us and to make us into the people that he wants us to be. I wish, I wish it were another way. I really do. And I hate the thought of 
you guys living a life in which you're going to be called to suffer. I really do. But I'm wrong. Because God says this is the way it needs to be. And this is what he uses to make us into the people he wants us to be. And to have a childlike faith in the middle of that suffering. Uh, how do we do that? It says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. In the middle of your suffering, can you trust God? Because you're suffering according to his will. I want you to hear these words very carefully. This is God's will. You suffer according to God's will. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It is God's will. Those who suffer according to God's will have to trust God and commit themselves to him and to believe that he is doing something with, that they can't currently see, but something that is good. Uh, let me close with a little uh, example of that. That's my daughter, Lindsay. She was about four years old. And uh, you know, it's a cast on her arm. We had just gotten back from seminary, having a big church party in somebody's backyard. We were just getting out of the minivan, and Lindsay ran in the backyard to be with her good friend Erica. And we hadn't even barely gotten out of the car. And somebody came back around and said, you need to come, need to come get Lindsay. Uh, her arm looks really bad. And uh, so we, we went to grab Lindsay and looked at her, and it was one of those where the bone wasn't sticking out, but the arm you know, went like this. And, uh, and so we scooped her up and took her to the emergency room. And uh, they, of course, knew it was broken. The question was, how bad is it broken? And uh, so as they uh, uh, did the x-ray, somehow we got her through the x-ray. Uh, the doctor looked at me, and he said, uh, how old is she? Well, she's barely four. He says, well, we'd really like to avoid general anesthesia. We don't really have to put her under. Uh, we can do a general anesthesia, but you're going to have to hold her down. What? You hold her down, I'm going to set her on. She, she won't feel it, but she's going to think she's feeling it, because uh, her arm is numb. Uh, but, uh, but you have to hold her still in order for this to be accomplished. So I walk up to little Lindsay, and I put my hands on her shoulders, and the doctor starts walking up to her arm, and she gets, she's pretty smart. She figures out what's going on pretty fast. <laughs> and she looks up at me as I'm holding her down, and she just says, no, Daddy, no. And I hold her down while the doctor sets her on. There are times in your life where you feel like that four-year-old. You just don't know. God, what are you doing? No, Daddy, no. It doesn't make any sense. Please, stop it. Why are you holding me here while the world is hurting me? And the Father knows something you don't know. He doesn't want you to go through life with a broken arm. He wants you to be whole. This is the love of the Father, that he wants you to be whole. And when you suffer according to God's will, I want you to know you can commit yourself 
to a faithful creator. He loves you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness and love to us in Christ. Father, we confess before you that the suffering that we experience and the pain sometimes, it just doesn't make any sense. We don't understand what you're doing. And your ways are an absolute and complete mystery to us. And we feel as if, uh, as we cry out, no, you're simply not listening to us. And yet, Father, you are a good God. So good that you have held back nothing from us, even the very lifeblood of your Son. And that whatever your plan for momentary pain and struggle in our lives, we pray you would give us faith childlike faith to believe that in the midst of our suffering your purpose is good help us in that for we're weak and we are very childlike and we resist that help us to believe your word is true we pray in Jesus name